0: Hi, I'm Rich Burma. Thanks for listening to Tea Leaves. For this episode, I wanted to share a recent panel discussion that the Asia Group co-hosted at the Atlanta Council commemorating President Eisenhower's historic visit to India in 1959. I had the pleasure to sit down with Susan Eisenhower, who's president of the Eisenhower Group and President Eisenhower's granddaughter, and Dr. Will Hitchcock of the University of Virginia, and also the author of The Age of Eisenhower, New York Times bestseller. And it was a great opportunity to reflect on the legacy of President Eisenhower, his thoughts on Asia, why he was the first US president to go to India, and why that trip was important. What's interesting is at the beginning of the episode, you'll also hear a short excerpt of a speech that President Eisenhower made on December 11th, 1959, at the U.S. Embassy in Delhi, where interestingly enough, he talks about this year, 2019, which is why we also thought it would be interesting to recognize his visit. You can listen to the full audio of President Eisenhower's speech by clicking on the link in the description of this podcast episode. We hope that you'll enjoy the conversation. You're not going to get peace that way.
1: This is going to be people that do it. People talking to people. And when I take a look at the Cub Scouts and children of that age, and I stop to think, what will be the year? What will be the year on the calendar when they are my age? Say they're nine now, and add 60 years to that, and that's 2019. What is that world going to be then? What are we teaching these little fellows and girls, young Americans, young Indians, how to do these things better than we've done them? Because if we don't do it by that time, 2019, then indeed this poor poor old world, I think, would be in a sick state. But the point is, if we do our work well, they'll do theirs better. And we will have a kind of earth that is moving ahead. With a greater measure of happiness for all people, a greater satisfaction in the work we ourselves have done. So, as I say, when I see this kind of a crowd, I think of your opportunity to do practical work, where I go around talking to or just talking too much sometimes. You don't. You're doing work that is valuable. The people to people is what will save the world. Thank you very much, and goodbye and good luck.
0: We're extremely honored to have Susan Eisenhower join us today. She's a leading thinker on foreign policy, business, and history. She's a prolific author and commentator, having written hundreds of op-eds, appearing regularly on numerous national media outlets. She's in the final stages of publishing her fifth book, How Ike Led the Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. We're also honored to host Will Hitchcock, a distinguished professor at University of Virginia's Department of History. He is a preeminent scholar on Eisenhower. He he is the author of numerous books, the most recent of which is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s. It is a New York Times bestseller and it is is a great book. Susan and Will, thank you both for being here. Please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Thank you. Well, thank you again, both, for, for being here. Susan, maybe I'll just start with you. When, when you see a video like that and you hear the audio, um, what, what comes to mind? What's, what's your reaction, emotional or otherwise?
2: Well, I really enjoyed seeing that. I enjoyed hearing the speech, but I think it was a masterful job of overlaying it with uh, scenes from that five-day trip. Uh, that was the longest of those 11, uh, uh, he visited 11 countries and uh, went out of his way to make sure that he was in India for five days, which was much longer than the other countries he visited. You were mentioning earlier
0: that you used to hear a lot about that trip growing up.
2: Yes, my uh, my father and my mother accompanied the president on this uh, trip. My grandmother probably didn't have the stamina for um, uh, 11 countries. And uh, she was talking about it all the way into her later years, uh, mm. about the India piece, particularly.
0: When, when I, uh, I, I'm certainly no Eisenhower scholar, but the more uh, you read about him and the more you understand him, such an incredibly uh, complex individual, but also such an unlikely story, right? Comes from such humble roots. And then he goes on to become this incredibly worldly person as someone said, the diplomat's uh, diplomat, from warfighter to diplomat. I wonder if you could, just in your own words, how did, how did that happen? He just seemed so comfortable amongst not the hundreds of thousands, but the million-plus people who came out.
2: Well, it helps to have a friendly crowd. <laughs> no, but let me say. Uh, let me start by saying that uh, he's viewed as complex. I never thought that as a kid, and I still don't, so I hope I'm going to address that in my book. But uh, many people don't realize that he was really, I think, our most international president, in that he had lived for successive years in, uh, in Latin America, in Asia, and in Europe twice. And so he had this enormous uh, global perspective, because in each of those cases, he was there more than one year. Uh, and he learned to see things from the perspective of uh, the people who lived in, in those parts of the world and had respect and appreciation for what they were dealing with. Mm.
0: And can you give us a sense also about, he, he was a reluctant entry into politics. Uh, and and <laughs> reading in Will's book, both parties were trying to grab onto him and, and Get him to run for president he kept saying no he said no for a long time um but you know did he ever feel that comfortable as a as a politician how would he like to be uh thought about as a military leader a politician how do, how do you think about it
2: well i think uh we have to remember that he was a military man so uh, it sounds a little corny to say, but those six years he spent trying to decide whether to run for president or not revolved around where where he thought his duty rested, which is, for civilians, a very hard thing to kind of explain because it sounds very odd in a political context. But I, I do think that um, he had certainly his share of politics during World War II. I mean, just uh, keeping a fractious alliance together revolves having... Political sensitivities, uh, and I think he he saw that he at at some stage decided to run for president because he did not agree with Democratic uh, budget spending, and he uh, was terrified that the Republicans were going to be the party of isolationism. So, in in a lot of ways, I think his one of his enormous contributions is the fact that uh, he. Once and for all, and resolutely made America put America into the world and assured that we did not have a retrenchment of isolationism after World War II.
0: Mm. And his friendship with Prime Minister Nehru is that given what the time you've spent with him and and um, what you know about him with an unusual friendship or fairly typical based on? his worldly experiences?
2: Well, I I, uh, had the experience of of doing some research in this area myself, and I was very interested in a letter he sent to the U.S. ambassador in India saying that uh, this man, Nehru, is someone I want you to spend all of your time on, (laughs) uh, that he's pivotal to the developments that are going to be underway in that country. And then he went out of his way, as you say, in 1956 to invite Nehru to the Gettysburg farm. I have to say that Nehru was the only one actually to stay in the house. Uh, Others would later stay in a guest house, but he was put in the room my sister and I used to share. Oh, my. Uh, (laughs) So he got the family treatment, I can tell you. (laughs) It's a good thing that uh, international relations didn't suffer for it. Right, uh, right.
0: Uh, well, the book you wrote is is really uh, it's really something special. I, but I wonder if you could set the scene for us a bit, maybe take us back uh, to 1959 or that that period, and what the president was concerned about both domestically and internationally, and and how this trip sure. fit in.
3: So first of all, I love that video and that speech because that's really the true Eisenhower. I mean. He was complicated, but then that really was who he was. In many ways, it's in tension with some of the policies of his administration. But that man that you saw there was the true Eisenhower. And by that, I mean, what is he really doing in that, in that speech? So that's a speech to an American audience, the staff, the embassy staff, American community in India. And he's deflecting attention to them. He's saying, don't listen to the, to the leaders so much as think about your contribution. That is something he did very well as a military leader. That's something he did in some of his most famous public speeches, he, especially when he was getting all of these honors at the end of World War II, was to deflect attention and praise back onto this average soldier. It's a wonderful gesture and it became a sort of habit for him and I think just as a, tool of le- a, a, a lesson of leadership, he was the most famous and inarguably the most beloved man in the world in the decade of the 1950s, honestly. And yet he always found a way to say your work is much more important than what I'm doing. So just bear that in mind. We're all internationalists. We're globalists. We we like foreign policy. But we also know, everybody in this room knows, that the president is overwhelmingly concerned with domestic politics. We hate to admit it, but it's overwhelmingly the case. And sometimes the president hates that he is trapped by domestic politics. But this is also true of Eisenhower. In 1958, Eisenhower had a pretty rough year. 1957 was the Sputnik launch. 1958 was the accusations of the missile gap. There was a short uh, recession, and in November of 1958, the Republican Party got absolutely hammered in the midterm elections, absolutely hammered. So coming back in the beginning of 1959, he's facing a totally democratic-controlled Congress. He's in the lame-duck period of his presidency. He's got two years left. What's he going to do? What's going to be his great legacy? And he has meetings with his advisors and his advisors say, you're going to go over the head of Congress and you're going to take the Ike show on the road. You're going to be an ambassador of peace. So what he does is he's planning in 1959 and 1960 to, to do this. He wants to, to this extraordinary trip as a result of trying to go to the world with a message of peace. He really wants to travel to the Soviet Union, and that is why he invites Khrushchev to come to the United States in the fall of 1959. Uh, hoping to get a reciprocal trip to the Soviet Union in 1960, which was, in fact, planned, but didn't happen. We can get into that. But so part of this he, he, he's, he's engaging with Nehru. He's also earlier, but now it's Khrushchev. Then he's off to the world. And this world trip is 11, 12 countries. Starts in Italy with meeting the Pope, and he goes to Central Asia, then he comes back around North Africa, back to Europe. It's an incredible trip. But he's, he's thinking about how to secure his legacy. And his legacy is going to be a mission of peace to the extent that he has this extraordinary reputation globally as a man of honor, decency, and goodwill. Yeah. So always bear in mind that behind every public appearance on the world stage, there's usually some domestic political trap that, he's, that a
0: president's trying to get out of. That's interesting. Um, I want to focus you on the remarks themselves, because uh, in the Delhi remarks, the president says he's been talking a lot about America's deep desire for, for peace. And he says, I know the people of the nations around the world feel exactly as the people of America do. And this is I found this really interesting. He said, I n- have never yet found a people that were belligerent. I know of no men that just long for the battlefield. Now, thats you could argue that's a really hopeful view mm-hmm. of the world, like we're all peaceful um, and we aspire to peace, which a lot of people don't accept. Or you could say he was so Shaped and impacted by the brutality of World War II, or or maybe it's both. What what's going on there?
3: I, I think you've got it right. He was he was um, he knew as the arguably the world's most famous soldier that he could be most powerful by preaching a message that w- of, of hostility to war, and he did it from the moment the Second World War ended. Uh, one of one of the remarks that he gave when he was getting awards in in New York was, you know, you'll find you'll find no greater pacifist than the general officer. He hates war. He never wants it. Now, that was in 1945, after you know this extraordinary conflagration. So he carried that message with him for much of the rest of his life that nobody wants war, and anyone who's seen it really doesn't want it. Now, mind you, and again, Eisenhower is, is, is sometimes in tension with himself because his administration was extraordinarily focused on building up the deterrent capabilities of the United States. And in the, United, in the 1950s, the United States spent more on defense as a percentage of GDP than any peacetime administration in American history, period, up in, including up until today, by, by a mile, 10% of GDP on defense. So it's not as if the United States was beating its, plow, its, its uh, uh, swords into plowshares. Quite the opposite. He was saying that's the way we're going to secure peace, through diplomacy, but also being prepared for war if we need it. So a, a wonderfully... Comp- uh, Uh, You say he's not complicated, but he appears to be not complicated, but his policies sometimes were actually somewhat complex.
0: Susan, he goes on to say, but the governments have a habit of getting into the way of the sentiments and feelings of people. It's the governments that conduct propaganda, I won't comment about today's uh, environment, that put out what they call information. And he says, it's really the governments that are creating the problems for the people. And it's this recurring theme that if we just let the people engage with each other directly, let the diplomats do their work, get the politicians and the governments out of the way, that's his recipe. And he had such respect for diplomats, for diplomacy, for this conduct of just people-to-people ties. What, what is, Where does that come from? What's that about?
2: Well, I, I think, first of all, it's clearly aspirational. I mean, it might sound actually even naive, but uh, his job, as much as anything else, was to inspire people. Um, and as, as Will uh, very rightly said, to... Uh, make them understand that they have responsibilities in this process, too. It's very easy to become apathetic or to check out because this is all the government's issue. I would I would mention one other thing, and it's um, something that I thought was uh, very powerful, especially with respect to American views about the Soviet Union at the time, but you could fill in the blank with any other country, that uh, Eisenhower was, um, and this is in quotes, wanted to avoid what he called the potential for paranoid uncertainty. uh, That this was the most dangerous environment of all. And uh, people-to-people contacts would be a way of mitigating the fear we have of other people we don't know. We're seeing signs of it today in our society. And speaking of paranoid uncertainty, oh my goodness. um, I mean, we should uh, hold that thought in our heads because uh, as as the countries around uh, the world today retreat into themselves, uh, you can see the, the potential dangers.
0: What, what you said is really important, because there's another subtext in the remarks, which for all, for everything in the remarks, even the 2019 reference, the thing that is most, I guess, compelling to me, and I guess I'd ask both of you, he says, uh, that, like, there's a theme of respect. Right. Uh, no matter how someone is dressed, no matter what their language, and then this is his quote, you can show the inborn courtesy that is expected of God's creatures. He's going to treat you with respect regardless of how you look, regardless of what your religion is, regardless of whether you have an accent or not, regardless of whether you're poor uh, or rich. And that's just an incredibly thoughtful view.
3: I just happened to be (laughs) at the Eisenhower farm last week. I commend it to you if you haven't visited it. If you want to get exactly to that notion, go and see Eisenhower's home, where he brought Nehru, where he brought Khrushchev, where he brought Churchill, and you will see that this is a warm, modest family home. And they sat on chairs on the back porch, and they simply talked to one another. Now, it didn't lead to immediate breakthroughs, but it did have an extraordinary personalizing effect. And I think what it reveals is that the guy was not a man who cared about the trappings of power.
2: You know, I would add to that, uh, Rich, and I think it's very important because you talked about the year 2019 and this group of scouts. Yeah. Um, if you go back and read Ike's speeches, he's always throwing in there his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't taking it personally. Uh, <laughs> this is a, a way of talking about rising generations. So he was playing a long game. And I think this is the reason he focused on, on those young people uh, in the audience and uh, trying to uh, bring some sense of spirit to them as well about uh, uh, the role that they're going to play now and in the future.
0: Yeah, so this 2019 reference, obviously, I assume it's a random reference. I mean, uh, did it ever come up? Before?
3: No, no, he's, uh, he's 69.
0: Right. No, I know. Oh, but during he, the visit. Does, so just doing the math. Right. But he he just kind of randomly looks out and sees what he thinks are nine year old kids and, and does his math. But when we think about, again, the themes, just if if he was here today, what's the scorecard? Where where are we on any of these themes that you've you mentioned isolationism? You mentioned America's role in the world. Uh, what would he say to Republican leaders, Democratic leaders, uh, Americans
2: Well, I've got my own theories about this, but he was he did play for the long game and he left um, the budget in balance for his successor with a a surplus Uh, He thought that was all part of good stewardship. I think he'd be deeply concerned about the uh, state of our finances Uh, Maybe the economy looks good But I don't know how a trillion dollar budget deficit looks to people here in this audience But I think that would worry him also uh, think about what the middle way that he espoused represents. It, it represents the area around which conciliation, compromise can take place. And I think he'd be very disturbed by our unwillingness to find that common ground. What do you think?
3: I agree. And I, I think the one message that one could take from this, this video and, this, and these remarks is respect for people with whom you might disagree, especially on the world stage. But that can apply at home. Uh, you spoke about the generosity that he, t- he he talked about the idea of welcoming the stranger into your house, the idea of saying let 's just talk and exchange uh, uh, some pleasantries, and in that small way we 're going to send out a little ripple of good feeling i mean These are gestures that mattered enormously to Eisenhower, I think to his generation. Uh, there was a kind of courtliness, a formality, a dignity, but also a simplicity about his his bearing. These are things frankly i the more i he, you know my students cannot really literally pick Eisenhower out of a lineup. That's, that's the distance we have traveled um, from that time. And yet you watch his
0: remarks, and
3: you get a sense for his personality. And you think, man, there are things we can learn from this man.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's a, perhaps a good way to, to end, because he also ends on a hopeful note. Yeah. I mean, he says the people to people is what will save the world, and which is an exceptionally talk. hopeful note. I just want to ask you both what you're both working on now. Is there a, a, a new book coming up for you? And is there another Eisenhower project? Susan, how about you?
2: Well, I'm, I'm uh, finishing uh, How I Kled, um as we speak. And um, it'll be out in May, uh, late May, probably early June. Great. Well,
3: I've been working in the Library of Congress this week, going there just again this afternoon on how Americans responded to the collapse of democracy around the world in the late 1930s. There's a few echoes, I think, to our contemporary. Great.
0: Well, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for sharing this history with us. And we really have learned so much from this great leader and your interpretations of of his leadership as well. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for tuning in for this Tea Leaves episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.